with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. It's the Friday edition, which means we have the panel coming up at the bottom of the hour. But to start the program, as usual, it is this week's Ram and Stag. Good morning. I'm your host, Nathan Gita, and today we'll be talking with Aaron Ekman. He's joining us in studio today, which is a privilege. I mean, we're uh, in BC. We just loosened up all our restrictions. So obviously, this is exactly what uh, Bonnie Henry was thinking, because we're going to talk of her so highly later. I must confess that even a hardened cynic like myself is cautiously optimistic about the four-step reopening plan for BC. Tentatively, the dates are May 25th. That was yesterday, I believe and June 15th, July 1st, and then September 7th, just after the Labor Day long weekend. So perhaps the reason I've dared to hope that we might finally be heading out of this nonsensical tyranny that I honestly don't believe saved any lives and probably cost more than it than it, than it helped, uh, is that the completely tone-deaf trio of Dix, Henry, and Horgan might finally understand that the rage of British Columbians has reached a critical mass. People already heading to their cottages, cabins, and retreats without giving a hoot what the travel order is. Masks are beginning to droop under chins and speakies are openly operating. There's even some churches that are leaving their doors open, just not telling anybody that there's a service. But if you happen to be there and the priest happens to be there, the pastor, whatever, eh, mass suddenly appears. And so funnily enough, I I think that people are finally getting to a point that they're just upset with it all. So to that end, we've got Aaron Ekman on and we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in BC and the change of the restrictions. Were were you uh, expecting them to extend things or did you think things would uh, loosen up? Uh, this last I figured Tuesday. things were going to have to loosen up um, a little bit. I mean, the cases have been in free fall for the last couple of weeks, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially if you compare the number of cases in British Columbia to, to the ones in Alberta, uh, the, the difference is quite stark. But mm. and, and, and the number of vaccinations have gone up as well. A lot mm-hmm. of people are – I haven't been vaccinated. I don't think you've been vaccinated. Nope. But uh, a, a good number of people have. So uh, at that point, you think – they kind of have to come off. Um, You'd hope so. And, I, you know, I, I probably differ from a number of people in the sense that I've never felt that the restrictions in British Columbia were that stringent compared to some other jurisdictions. I, I think if I was working in the – if I was still working in the service industry like I did when I was younger, uh, I would be singing a different tune. I know if you're, if you're working as a server, and especially in a restaurant or something like that, mm-hmm. it's been terrible. Uh, but a good number of people in the province, in the public sector, for instance, haven't, haven't uh, taken a hit at all. Um, but also what's so interesting to me is if you, if you get on Twitter, like if you got on Twitter yesterday, which I don't recommend by the way, no. uh, but some of us do it so you don't have to. Um, <laughs> but if you were on Twitter yet, yesterday, I mean, you got the sense that British Columbians were incensed at how fast the restrictions were coming off. And, and it was just another example of how Twitter is like the same 10 people and, and well, the rest of us aren't there? The people on Twitter think that Twitter is representative of the world, like it is their whole universe. But it is absolutely clear to me that it's this increasingly smaller group of basically technocrats and sort of the professional managerial class who just like accelerate and reverberate these echo chamber ideas off of each other. Until they they convince themselves that it's representative of of the whole population, but if you step outside, which none of these people are doing, I guess, uh, and talk to a real person, you get a very different sense of reality. Mm-hmm. So so that was that was my takeaway was that the restrictions. Uh, I've never thought the restrictions in in BC were quite that bad. Like 
but again, I mean, I don't go to church. I don't work in the service sector. Uh, but when you see the kind of stuff that's happening in Alberta, where they're where they're literally jailing pastors, yeah, they're, like they're breaking into churches, they're shutting down rodeos, like all sorts of crazy stuff. Which you know, in my opinion, the Western Standard's been doing a great job, uh, quite a courageous job of covering. I don't think anybody else is really covering it, at least not with the same slant that the Standard is. Uh, that kind of stuff isn't really happening in BC, um, and so I've sort of got the sense that well, you know, it hasn't been quite as bad, but. Um, but if, you, like I said, if you get on Twitter, uh, people are incensed that the restrictions are are coming off at all. Yeah, we're gonna have to. I guess we're gonna have to cross-examine Stuart Parker on that tomorrow. Well, he'll uh, give you just, a different take. Yeah. We're gonna get the opposite <laughs> of that. So if you were really in favor of the restrictions, we're gonna have uh, Stuart come on tomorrow and explain to us why uh, fly fishing isn't an essential service. But uh, we love you, Stuart. Uh, but the point being that I think I think. What's hit me a bit is that it's kind of weird. I, I really expected Bonnie Henry to, to blink again like she did right before Easter. Right before Easter, she just – all of a sudden, she just reversed everything. Like People had started to like pull out chairs at churches. Like they had started to move things around. Like They had made a lot of moves to get this to happen because they were kind of given two days' notice, and they started to move, move, move as fast as they could, and then it snapped the other direction. Mm-hmm. And and they had to put everything back and roll everything back up. And uh, suddenly the restaurants, even dining, was closed. Like it was just, it was a really big reality reversal for a lot of people. And so a lot of people were really disappointed about it. They've been mad about it the last six weeks, and now now here we are. So I for myself, I felt like uh, Bonnie was going to blink on us again and and pull the football, but. But she didn't. And so far, we don't know what's going to happen next. We'll see if cases climb or whatever. But Bonnie, I really didn't have faith in her. But at this rate. You know, uh, I'm hoping to get married by the end of the summer. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. I mean, I'm not really big into marriage, but I really, I know. I really like it when other people do it, and <laughs> especially good people. Like, I, I like it when good people get together and make more good people, and so I'm really excited to see, you know, you go down this road. Well, and, thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I, I, I watched yesterday's show, and I know some people maybe weren't too into you telling well, you. Well, yeah, story, I didn't but... really know what was going on there. Somebody was, like, crapping all over that. I was, I just, I was like, I'm just sharing this news. It wasn't like I talked about it the whole time, not even remotely, but it just... <laughs> Just well, you know. talked about it a lot, but like it's pretty <laughs> exciting. I mean, you, li- you literally got engaged the day before. I mean, you can't, you know, like let's talk to you f- a few weeks after you get sure. married. You won't be talking about this anymore. Yeah, you fair know. enough. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a there's a comment right here. Actually, it's a good place to go. Does BC have any desire for independence? Hell yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's the problem. I think that Northern BC has got a desire for independence from Southern BC at this rate, especially especially COVID. I think COVID might have really pushed that over the edge because they just divided the province into clearly the tiny little corner down in the southwest and everybody else and everybody else is just like that's it i'm going to the cabin i'm going boating i don't care and people down in Va- vancouver and victoria are the ones that are all scaredy cats about everything again that's and that's just it like we don't the rest of us are all like no nah, i'd rather go out to the mountains and do whatever and have a barbecue and I think I think they kind of showed the cultural differences between the two parts of the province. Well, thanks, Rose, for like allowing us to, you know, prompting us to talk about this. There's nothing I like talking about more in British Columbia than than the independence question, uh, which is mm-hmm. which you know catches a few people off guard because I'm a self-proclaimed wide-eyed socialist, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, I mean, the reason why I wanted to rush to get on your show today was because a few people were calling you a socialist I saw in the comments. Yeah, no, like, yesterday I was being called a socialist. Which I was for... just at my house watching, howling. I thought, I better come on this show and remind people what a real socialist looks like, right? <laughs> <laughs> Nathan, Nathan's just a capitalist <laughs> from the days before bailouts, okay? Like, he doesn't, he, that, that's not what's going on over here. <laughs> but in, the independence discussion in BC is, is, I would argue, more complicated than than 
than in Alberta. In Alberta, mm-hmm. it's it is it, a lot more complicated. Yeah, it's and it's more complicated because it's not really a, it's not necessarily a conservative. Uh, like there's not a conservative bent to it. Not uh, a conservative liberal divide, not necessarily. No, it's not. It's not like wholly in the conservative milieu. No. It's it's sort of spread, which it has to be because British Columbia is so politically diverse. It, mm-hmm. d- depending on where you go, uh, you know. And we said before, you go to the northeast of the province, closer to Alberta, it's definitely more conservative. But the further west you go, even along the same parallel, so you can stay just as north, but you get closer to Terrace. Kitimat, et cetera, or you go up to Atlan. Yeah, to like there's, you know, I mean, there's some left wing people out there, right? Yeah. Um, I'm I'm from Terrace originally. My family's from Terrace. Where you know, it's like a, I come from like logging stock, right? Right. Uh, right. Basically, the forest industry before the bottom fell out of it. Uh, and so it's, you know, like on my house, for instance, if you were to drive by my house, there's a, there's a, some, on some days there's a British Columbian flag hanging off the house. On other days, there's a Cascadian flag, the old Doug, right? Hanging, hanging off the house. But if you look at the old boundaries of the Cascadian bioregion, it just sort of clips, uh, Prince George where we are, the Northern capital into it and sort of excludes the rest and sort of seeds it to basically Alberta. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the rough boundaries of people that have sort of played around with this idea, uh, I think if you're in the lower mainland and sort of the southwest of the province, maybe the southern interior, interior you, you're kind of interested in you've you've been kind of interested in the Cascadian experiment, the Cascadian discussion, uh, and so you you generally have an affinity to Oregon and and Washington and, and that area. But if you're in the rest of the province, like northeast, etc., uh, you're more of like a you probably more identify as a New Caledonian. Um, and certainly if you get into the Peace River country, I mean, a lot of those folks identify with Albertans far more than they do with – with, They're on their time. They're on their time as well. I mean, the, this is the Mountain Standard Time uh, show, right? And we're t- not even in that time zone. I mean, so, so there is that interesting political divide. So it, it, it presents a unique challenge for Alberta because, uh, you know, part of the disagreement I might have with some Albertan independents – uh, advocates or separatists, for instance, is that I, I would argue that the the independence movement, from my perspective, it's not necessarily accurate and not the same from everybody's perspective, is a little too uh, controlled by by oil interests, by industry interests. It's not, and it's not that I'm against oil or pipelines. I'm actually in favor of most pipelines. Um, I just I'm always hesitant when any kind of a political movement has too much sort of corporate or industry control, especially <laughs> given that a lot of the industry uh, participants in that particular industry are. Their foreign interests. Yeah, yeah, they are. Uh, so you know, like I, I got no love for uh, our federated system where where we've got uh, you know we're controlled by a government in Ontario, which really, from my perspective, uh, is is just as far away from me as Japan. You know, hmm. like it's not that much far. It's not that much closer. Um, but I but I'm even more hesitant to to go down a road where. You know, sure, you fight for independence, but then you end up controlled by sort of the corporate interests uh, in your area, which aren't even really from your area. But the challenge for Alberta, I think, on this question is, you know, you got to, you have to, whether you whether you're worried about oil interests or not, you still have a product that you're producing, and and most of the economy in that province is based on getting that product to market. And BC presents a big challenge because we, you know, we got the coastline, um, so. It's an interesting discussion. I think the challenge for independence advocates in Alberta is the biggest challenge. Really, is the BC question. What? Do, how do we? How do we create political alliances with you know people like me, for instance, who probably see things a little differently on a number of political issues, but happen to be an ally on the question of independence from from Ottawa and Ontario, mm-hmm. uh, or at the very least, greater provincial autonomy from the federal government. More of you know. 
uh, more of a decentralized system. I don't think that it, it it's totally counterintuitive that people from the left could be more independently minded. I mean, I don't think Tommy Douglas was a big, big federation guy. And I think that if you even look at the way Rachel Notley was kind of charting her own course and, and for that matter, I mean, Tom Mulcair had some, a lot of deference to Quebec's questions around sovereignty, though he was still a, a legalist. Like he, he did believe in laws. And so now he has criticisms around what Trudeau is doing, just letting Quebec rewrite the constitution by himself. But I mean, I feel like there, and I mean, Manitoba as well. I think Manitoba went and, and Saskatchewan under its NDP governments didn't necessarily always just go with Ottawa. Same with the BC NDP didn't just hang out with Ottawa all the time. And I mean, they're going to chart their own course here on the daycare question. I don't. I don't think that it's, it. Ha- I think what people get wrong is that they think that if you're left wing, you're inherently big state, right. or you're just inherently big government. Yeah. And this is actually somewhere where I think you and Stuart. I think that's one of the reasons why you and Stuart disagree on some things. Is that I, I was talking with Stuart about this last week because I was like, well, should BC get a Senate? Right. Because because the problem is that uh, Victoria doesn't represent us very well. So should BC get a Senate? And he's like, well, I don't believe in bicameral system. I'm like, well, why is that? Well, he's like, because I'm a big state guy. And I don't yeah, need right. three, you know, three, four, ten checks and balances to keep my agenda from rolling through. And I'm like, well, that's an interesting back and forth. But to the same point here, like, I just don't, I, I don't think you're a big government guy. I think you like the idea of like, cor- like crown corporations, but you're not a big government guy. That's part one of this week's Ram and Stag. We'll have part two in a moment here on After Nine. Throughout your life, the information you need to thrive and survive continually changes. Tune in to 93.1 CFIS-FM Tuesday afternoons at 1 for Senior Moments. Each week, Sharon Heard and AJ will talk with the movers and the shakers in our community to keep you in the loop with the information you need from the people who know it best. Sponsored by Riverbend Manor, Tuesday afternoons at 1 with a rebroadcast Tuesday nights at 9. Senior Moments, only here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. The B.C. government is providing more than $50 million to help restaurants, bars, breweries, wineries, gyms, and fitness centers. The Circuit Breaker Business Relief Grant is open to eligible businesses of any size that have been in operation since February 1st. Up to $10,000 is available to help with rent, insurance, employee wages, and more. The amount available for each qualifying business will be based on the number of employees. For full details, search for Circuit Breaker Business Relief Grant at gov.bc.ca. Once again this year, youth 15 and younger are invited to take part in the Summer Fishing Challenge. Designed to encourage enjoyment of freshwater fishing, the first 1,000 youth who record at least five fishing trips are eligible to win a fishing tackle kit. Additional prizes are available for other achievements. Sign up to learn more about the sport with the virtual Learn to Fish programs and find full details on the Summer Fishing Challenge at GoFishBC.com. Forecast for Environment Canada. Cloudy with a 60% chance of showers early this morning, then a mix of sun and cloud. West wind 20 gusting to 40, a high of 15 with a high UV index. Clear tonight, gusting west winds becoming light, a low of 3 with a risk of frost. Sunny on Saturday and a high of 19. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. As promised, here is the second part of this week's Ram and Stag. I, I don't think you're a big government guy. I think you like the idea of like cor- like crown corporations, but you're not a big government guy. No, I think uh, it, it, it's. I mean, that's an interesting point. It, it's 
and my position's probably changed a little bit over the years, but I, I, I think you're correct. I'm not a big government guy in the traditional sense that somebody like my, me would be. I'm an old school Leninist because, you know, I mean, the old Leninist uh, position on this stuff is eventually you you try to facilitate what he called the withering away of the state. I mean, you you, you really are trying to get rid of that stuff. In some ways, he was uh, a bit of an anarchist, but um, not in as much of a hurry, uh, where the anarchists just sort of want to wipe it all out. Uh, I think that I'm a big believer in public services that provide value and are more economically efficient to deliver through the taxation model. It doesn't mean I think we should be subjected to all sorts of taxes. In fact, you and I disagree on on which tax is better, right? Like you, you I'm like, a consumption. Tax you're a guy. consumption tax guy. I think consumption taxes are by far the most regressive and 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 penalize workers disproportionately, right? I like taxes that sort of focus in on where the money is. Uh, and workers don't have as much money, and I don't think the workers should be taxed as much, which is why I like the Albertan system of not having a provincial consumption tax. Um, I, I think we should tax we should tax wealth, or or we should tax property. And and you and I could probably agree on the property piece, uh, given some of your comments uh, yesterday re- in relation to housing. Um, Certainly, well, speculation. Is speculation in particular. No yeah, uh, but I have I share the same worries that people on the right do uh, about. This leviathan that we're creating in government that is starting to get beyond just provision of health care uh, and all, all you know all the other kind of services that are important uh, and starting to get into discussions about uh, like whether whether white people have too much privilege without even knowing it for instance I mean like we had this graphic I don't know if we've we've got it but um, and it said something to the effect of if you uh, if you don't realize you have privilege, it probably means you've got privilege or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's this—it's the same diversity-based idea that we're paying money for this. Well, that's the, that's, <laughs> what what yeah. is happening? Well, it's this idea that like you're so racist, man. You don't even know you're racist, right? And and it's just such a like identitarian. It's a racist idea in itself, uh, and it's not. It's not necessarily racist against white people. It's it, like it, it just reduces everybody to their identity and totally removes. It, it's it's unbelievable to me that that like it, you know our government is putting this stuff out on on the taxpayer dime. Yeah, if you are unaware of your privilege, you might be privileged. Now, Wait, and what? this is this is the thing. Like you know, like the people that are really into Jordan Peterson, for instance, would look at this and go, "Well, this is this is coming out of our universities. This is a product of cultural Marxism, right?" And I can tell you that the the old school communists, the the ones that I sort of studied with, and 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 they were kind of mentors to me, people that were literally trained in the Soviet Union uh, instead of going to university, they fought against this kind of stuff vociferously, and and they fought against me when I was trying to bring it in. Like, and this is the reason. Like, I I'm not railing against uh, the identitarians necessarily. I'm sort of trying to come to terms with my own identitarianism of my own past self. And, you know, so I, I, when I went into the Communist Party, for instance, I, I started doing the same kind of things that I was trying to do in student unions and every other organization I was involved in. I, I wanted there to be like tokenized representatives on the, on the leadership council. Yeah, no, that, a lady representative, yeah, I want a lady, an Aboriginal representative. Yeah, you know, all based on the color of people's skin and stuff. And it was, and all the younger folks, they were all like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what we need to do. And it was the older school folks who had been trained, uh, you know, by Marxists in the Soviet Union who were like, no, this is terrible. This is a terrible idea. This is divisive. It takes away from what they termed at the time of working class unity. So it's it's always funny to me that like, you, you know, whenever people on the right are railing against this stuff in universities, et cetera, it's always the cultural Marxists that they 
that they uh, that they blame. But the reality is like name one real Marxist in a university today. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Canada, I can't really think of any. There's a lot of people that maybe call themselves Marxists. A lot of people in the gender studies departments maybe describe themselves as Marxists. They haven't read any Lenin. They haven't read any Marx. Like they've maybe read the Communist Manifesto, which is a pamphlet. You know, uh, like they, it, it's it's so inaccurate. So anyway, I mean that's quite a tangent. But uh, what I'm trying to say here is like we're not all evil. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and, and the, at least your ends, like your ends, could coincide with our ends, right? And like we just have to find the right means to get there. I think I think something that does need to be kind of uh, pivoted to. I think uh, poor Pat there. Poor Pat is tired of our. Of our of our Marxist rant here, he said, "Oh dear, uh, great show once again." Which allows me to promoting Marxism. Sorry, well, this isn't this isn't a necessary promotion of Marxism. This is to try to ex to extricate what what is actually Marxist versus what is identitarian, which is clearly clear. And identitarianism, I think we can all agree, regardless of our political backgrounds, is incredibly divisive. But well, I think it's racist. Well, yeah, no, it's it's, it's, it's it is it is racism. it's new Jim Crowism. It's yeah. it's absolutely evil and and it's segregation and it's and it's apartheid and it's wrong and needs to stop. I think I think that maybe one of the ways to kind of bridge the gap here too, though, is that especially for anybody who's watching from Alberta, I want you to imagine for a moment if somebody who who was all about you know like you get you know you're all on the same side on this question of like oh yeah no the government's got to cut spending and we got to back up on our public services and that sort of thing it's like everybody's like okay yeah everybody can be on side with that it's like and you know what we should do too we should get rid of the catholic school boards and there was like wait a second i really like my publicly subsidized catholic school board those are better schools i know they're better schools i know that cuz i got cousins in them that go to their i think they're at francis xavier in in calgary and they got a better football team and they got better students and they just got people are they're working harder there they are and they're performing better and could you imagine if somebody came in with that attitude it's like well that would be if you're going to use a word like intersection, that would be like a place of opposite, right? Like where you would divide with that person. And so what we're trying to do is find the opposite of that, where it's like, no, like you could have your Catholic school board and, and you know, pro- proper public services and a more efficient model too. It's not just a cake and eat it too thing. It's like, no, 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 there's a way to do this better. And that's the argument we're at. Well, not argument, but that's the discussion we're having here. We're trying to get find those places of intersection because if we all want this independence thing or we at least want Ottawa to get the hell out of our lives, we – we have to find allies, and we're not going to find allies by just rabble rousing. We have to we have to reach across the aisle and be like, "Look, you may be a godless commie, but we can both agree that Ottawa sucks. So how do we work together so I can go back to church and you can continue to do whatever you're doing, and and we both have a better independent tax, tax rationally state that that we." participate in and we feel free in well i think one of the things that the, the conservatives in, in canada and also you know across north america have the real positive thing that conservatives have contributed to the sort of the national discourse uh is this exposure of the reality that um we are far too divided and that when you try to cancel people they don't just go away no right? they don't and so you know my point is i guess you know, both sides of the divide have to have to remember this because it's not. I mean, right now the left is canceling people at, a, at an alar- alarming rate, far more I think than any other any other political grouping. But it hasn't always necessarily been that no. way. There are, uh, I mean, each side of the political divide has its ways that it cancels people. In fact, you know, I would argue as a as a self avowed Marxist, 
that the whole discussion around socialism and the way Marxists are framed, for instance, is a way for the right to try to cancel people. So, yes. like, there, you know, again, my my big criticism of Jordan Peterson, and it's a very narrow one because, I, like I said, there's a whole number of issues where I think he's been very helpful in the national discourse um, on compelled speech, freedom of speech, etc. Uh, but the the big uh, pitfall is like, you know, he'll sort of tag somebody as socialist or or something, and it's just this word that people use to try to dismiss what everything else that somebody else is saying. Well, clearly, I'm a socialist, according to the comments from yesterday. Yeah, which, I, I mean, if anybody actually talks to you for five minutes, it becomes pretty clear that you are the furthest thing from socialism. I was laughing yesterday. It was wonderful. I know. You're probably on the floor killing yourself. It's so just... so you have to remember, like, you know, you call somebody a socialist, for instance, they don't just vanish, right? It's just like if you call somebody a transphobe. Uh, and maybe get them kicked off of Twitter or something like that. They don't vanish. Uh, and so if you're trying to build a political coalition around something that has nothing to do with socialism or you know transgender rights or anything like that, like you're trying to build a political coalition around provincial autonomy, greater provincial independence vis-a-vis the federal government, and especially if, if British Columbia has to factor into that project, mm-hmm. well, you got to contend with people like me. Uh, but anyways, thank you so much for being here oh, today. Thanks for having me. Of course. That is this week's Ram and Steg podcast. Stick around when After 9 returns. We'll have the Friday panel. Nathan Gita back as host here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. For the second consecutive year, the University of Northern British Columbia will hold virtual convocation celebrations for its graduating class. The processes for completing graduation requirements are still the same, and all UNBC graduates in the class of 2021 from all campuses are invited to participate. More information about UNBC's 2021 convocation can be found at unbc.ca slash convocation. The University of Northern British Columbia class of 2021 virtual convocation, premiering June 25th at UNBC. Individuals who experienced sexual misconduct as a member of the Canadian Armed Forces or as an employee of the Department of National Defense and or staff of the non-public funds Canadian Forces may qualify for financial compensation and participate in a restorative engagement program. Claims for financial compensation and the restorative engagement program must be filed by November 24, 2021. File a claim. Participate in restorative engagement. Be heard. File a claim at caf-dndsexualmisconductclassaction.ca. Excavation is underway in preparation for the construction of two new apartment buildings behind Mr. PG. Access to the Prince George Landmark is still available during construction via the access road from Rec Place Drive or from the sidewalk running along the south side of Highway 97. More information about Mr. PG can be found on the city website at princegeorge.ca slash mrpg. My name is Nevaeh. I lost my foot in a lawnmower accident. Now I teach other children how to play safe. Kids shouldn't play near lawnmowers. Lawnmowers are very loud. The driver wouldn't be able to hear you if you were playing anywhere near. It's very important to be cautious. Whatever game you play, play safe. A message from the War Amps. Learn more at waramps.ca. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
Yes, good morning. Of course, this is After Nine, and I'm your host, Nathan Gita. We are going into the panel we have here on Fridays at CFIS. I've got Art Betke, I've got Eric Allen, I've got Herb Martin, and I've got Peter Ewart. Uh, let's get started right away. We're actually going to talk a little bit about the Northern Ridings. According to a report that came out a little while ago now, it's probably about 10 days ago now, uh, it's possible that the Northern Ridings are going to be changed to uh, compensate for the change in population of the Lower Mainland versus the declining or stagnant population of Northern British Columbia. This contravenes something that happened, of course, under the BC Liberals. Uh, the previous government, they had said that Northern Ridings would be preserved. They couldn't be lessened. They could only only be expanded over time, perhaps, or have the boundaries redrawn, but the number of ridings couldn't change. That's being suspended by the current NDP government, and for reaction to that, we are going to start with Herb. Herb, should we change the ridings, the number of ridings, or should we try and keep them the same? Well, we should uh, probably try and keep them the same. Uh, the uh, people need representation uh, based on geography, and it's not always, you know, based solely on population, but given that, I find it um, uh, kind of sad that John Rustad is, is making all the noise on this issue when uh, his writing has seen the consistently uh, declining populations, and uh, which really reflects on his government's policies of ending appurtenance and um, favoring uh, large corporations in the forest industry. Well, uh, certainly the B.C. Liberals did make some choices while they were in government, and those didn't necessarily always benefit the North, but supposedly they were still the Northern Party or right of center party. Uh, Art, uh, nonetheless, we have these ridings. Uh, do they need to be redrawn? And if they are lessened, what will happen to Northern British Columbian representation? Well, we already are not all that well represented because the majority of the population is in the south, in the lower mainland, uh, and that place, uh, that area is increasing all the time. So, yeah, I can see uh, increasing the number of ridings there, uh, but uh, up in the north, no, let's, let's not decrease them any farther. As it is, even without uh, cutting back the number of ridings up north, are. uh percentage of representation is going down just because it's increasing in the lower mainland and uh, we will always be basically ruled by the lower mainland just because the population density is so much greater there. Peter, uh, this has been an ongoing problem for years uh, but but ultimately there's an argument being made that if there isn't a Senate, there isn't a second house of government in British Columbia, there isn't a way to represent us regionally uh, to kind of give a counterbalance to Vancouver. Uh, is that the best argument if you were before the Electoral Boundaries Commission to try and tell them why we should keep the Northern Ridings? Uh, well, yeah, like the, in terms of the, you know, there is a, there is a problem, right? Like when you have a, a big center, a big uh, focus in the population, like in the lower mainland and the, and the rural areas, I agree with Art in the sense that uh, uh, we we certainly like the the population has increased in in the Vancouver area by 500,000 or something like that, right? Uh, we should increase the seats down there so that uh, people uh, have the representation. But we shouldn't touch the 17 seats up here, you know. Like the you know it gets into politics, right? You know, like the like the NDP. Criticize the Liberals for bringing in this, uh, you know, securing of the seven, 17 seats uh, back in 2014. They, they said, oh, you're being political, right? But then what is the NDP doing right now, right? You know, like when they're taking away the, um, the, the secure 17 seats, 
uh, not to say that we don't know at this point what the electoral uh, boundaries commission is going to decide. We know whether they are going to leave things the same or take take things away. But um, you really wonder whether uh, you know both parties uh, aren't playing a bit of politics over this whole. Uh, 17 seat thing, but uh, my belief is that the best solution is to maintain the 17 seats and increase the seats where the population has increased in the lower mainland. You know, that's just uh, the the way that uh, it should lay out in a democratic way. Well, Eric, I mean, you're all about representation. You want people to have a voice. Uh, do you think that uh, the NDP government's playing a little bit of ball here, or do you think that it is actually fair we have to change the riding numbers because, you know, let's face it, uh, northern B.C. doesn't have the population of southern B.C.? No, they don't. <clears throat> but generally, this is called gerrymandering. I mean, they're working around trying to find a different way to uh, to solidify their their base, you know, where where they get their representation. I don't think they get it, and certainly not in the northern interior. Certainly not in the two ridings around Prince George. Can go some of these ridings can go for years and years and years and never change. I mean, uh, representation, but uh, but we have to find a different way of doing it. I mean, you can put a hundred thousand people say into Surrey or Richmond or something. Why does that? Why do you need an extra represent, uh, representative based on population? Are, you know, are they going to get more phone calls? Is that the idea? Because I'm not going to do anything else. They're all living in high-rise apartments or something or whatever. Their cost of living and and looking after those big uh, areas down there are a hell of a lot less than they are up here. I mean, we actually uh, pay a lot more taxes than the individuals down in in uh, the greater uh, Vancouver area. And because they have so much less cost, you know, I mean, you can do uh, 100,000 people and look after them from a cost point of view a lot cheaper than you can do it up here where you got a, a, a city that's a 20-mile radius and snowed in. So I think we need to change that. We, we have to find a way to show um, maybe it should be based on on cost of looking after people as opposed to the fact of where they live. And, and if the cost is higher, and, and uh, then we need more representation. I think that's an excellent point, Eric. Uh, Herb, does that, what does that mean? Does that mean vote reform? Does it just mean redistricting? Does it just mean a change of political philosophy? What, what would be required to think about things that way? Uh, good, good question. Um, yeah, look, it's it's, uh, it's a sensitive, uh, sensitive issue. I mean, people in Surrey are vastly underrepresented if you compare them to people in uh, Chapel Lakes. Uh, it's um, you know, it's it's a valid question, uh, but uh, it's, it's you've got to you've got to weigh it out and uh, try and uh, keep everyone's interests more or less represented. It's uh, there's no perfect solution here, I don't think. Art, when it comes to these questions, uh, would you would you entertain then larger districts, perhaps with multiple representatives? So we keep the number of representatives the same, but the districts change in size. Or and it, does there need to be two different voting systems between the north and the south? Uh, I mean, there's an argument to be made too that there's graduated licensing that was built really for a place where you could walk to a SkyTrain because who cares if you can't have your license till you're 19? Because I mean, you got a SkyTrain up here, not having your license till you're 19 is kind of a death sentence. What? 
what uh, what what do we have what do we have different up here that we need from down there and vice versa? Oh boy, um, I think probably the best solution to it uh, would be to have the two houses, like the, the provincial senate. Uh, so that uh, different regions can be representative, rather than multiple uh, MLAs from each uh, riding, just keep the ridings the same, but also throw in a Senate, so that uh, each uh, riding has equal representation. Um, you know, just just to give some power to the regions and uh, even things out, but I, I can't see that ever happening. I, I think it's just going to keep on the way it is right now, and there will be gerrymandering going on for as long as there's politics here. I think that's uh, a, a bit of a dreary note, but not a wrong one. I think we're going to take a quick break right here, and we'll be right back after these messages. The Good Sir Nature Park is in need of volunteers for their sign restoration program. Most of their current signs are in disrepair, and the park manager, Jim Good, is hoping to complete a restoration while the ground is still soft from the spring melt. If you're able to help out, call the park at 250-971-2337. For more information on the Good Sir Park, check out their website at goodsirpark.ca. The Good Sir Park is in need of volunteers for their sign restoration project. Call 250-971-2337. Kickstart your spring with Fit Nation. The Indigenous Sport, Physical Activity and Recreation Council is pleased to present a five-part workout series brought to the comfort of your own home. Fit Nation leaders will guide you through each workout, providing options for each exercise in introductory, intermediate and advanced movements. Take on the 30-minute videos one at a time or tackle them 10 minutes at a time. The five-part Fit Nation workout series. Find it on YouTube on the iSpark Fit Nation channel. Our province-wide confidential seniors abuse and information line is a safe place for older adults and those who care about them to talk to a trained intake worker about abuse or mistreatment and receive information and support about issues that impact the health and well-being of an older adult. For more information, call the Seniors Abuse and Information Line at 1-866-437-1940, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., closed on statutory holidays. Forecast for Environment Canada. Cloudy with a 60% chance of showers early this morning, then a mix of sun and cloud. West wind 20 gusting to 40, a high of 15 with a high UV index. Clear tonight, gusting west winds becoming light, a low of 3 with a risk of frost. Sunny on Saturday and a high of 19. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Yes, good morning. We're back with the panel portion we have here on Fridays, and I'm going to jump right into it with the BC reopening. Um, just a few days ago, the government of British Columbia, uh, with Bonnie Henry, Adrian Dix, and of course, our Premier, John Horgan, have all come together to say it's time to reopen BC. They have a four-phase plan. Uh, we're in the midst of phase one right now, I believe, that started the day after, well, at midnight after Victoria Day. So uh, we're well underway here, I guess. And we'll see what happens come June 15th, July 1st or so, and then uh, September 7th. Uh, for a read on that, we're going to start with Peter. Peter, what's happening? Uh, yeah, they've laid out a... a a graduated plan, you know, that extends over the summer and uh, up until September the 7th, right? And so they have uh, various uh, benchmarks here in terms of uh, what's going to happen in terms of restaurants, uh, physical fitness places, and and so on, right? And it seems logical that you would have a graduated reintroduction of people 
you know, to, into the way things were before. You know, so I, I, I agree that there should be a graduated plan. Um, you know, for me, uh, you know, the issue is not so much over the summer. I think uh, uh, things are going to improve as they are right now. But uh, what's going to be the real uh, test in all this is, uh, is the fall-winter, right? You know, when people get back into, uh, you know, close quarters. And uh, we'll see, you know, like the vaccines are, you know, like they certainly provide a lot of protection against the, the virus, but they don't... Uh, eliminated entirely you know you can still you can still catch it and there's going to be variants around right so uh, I think the uh, graduated plan makes sense uh, but you know we're still we're not out of the woods we'll see um, over fall and winter uh, you know whether whether we can leave this thing behind or not Eric I mean, we're into a reopening session now. Uh, spring has sprung. It's actually nice and bright outside right now. It's been a few days of not-so-nice weather. But uh, people seem to get out over the Victoria Day weekend to uh, do some very essential travel around checking their cottages and their cabins to see if they still had doors and windows and if their uh, side-by-sides still worked and their boat motors still ran. Very important, essential travel. And then uh, we're underway now. We're open. So is that good news or bad news? Well, I guess it's both, really. I mean, you can see the buzz in the air. People are out getting around. I can notice it in the traffic around town. There's a lot more traffic than there was a couple of weeks ago. And uh, so I think they have to do something. They have to take a, not necessarily take a chance, but basically do what they're doing. And uh, because by doing it by steps, if you get into step two and things start to get worse, you won't go to step three. You, you'll either stay in two or you go back to one. So now there's sort of a, a laid out plan of exactly how they could do it. So you can say, well, if this doesn't work, we're never going to get to step four. So it also gets the people involved. And, and uh, you know, if you go along with the criteria, you may get the results. But, uh, you know, once again, who knows? Well, you know, you don't know what's going on here half the time. You probably get into that with the uh, that other item you got on your uh, agenda there about COVID nineteen itself. So I think it's good. You have to try something. People have to be really responsible if they want this thing to hold. Well, that's a, I think that's a fair way of putting it. Uh, really responsible, Herb. Are people going to be really responsible, or are we all just going to party like it's twenty nineteen? I think it sort of depends on uh, your age group. But I think the way that they've uh, laid it out is that everybody realizes it's not going to happen overnight, and um, they shouldn't be expecting things to miraculously um, uh, go back to the way it was. So I, I, I think it's uh, it's probably a smart move on the part of the government. Um, they're not promising the moon, and um, and keeps everyone a little bit wary and uh, and careful. Um, there's uh, look around the world. Uh, there's some countries with um, much higher rates of vaccination than ours. Mind you, not with Pfizer, but uh, some of the Chinese um, vaccines, and uh, they've they've encountered uh, increasing rates of COVID, uh, as well as uh, UK. UK um, uh, has seen resurgent numbers recently, and uh, which gives a little bit of. Um, pause and uh, and caution to us all 
Well, Art, I mean, uh, the restrictions are being relaxed slightly here. Uh, I, I have a suspicion that those in charge kind of understood that things were at a boiling point and they weren't going to be able to hold people down much longer with the restrictions. What do you think? Oh, that could be part of it, too. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, it, it does seem to be coming to an end. Uh, numbers are going down all over the world. Uh, well, most parts of the world, anyway. But, you know, last summer... Uh, that everything started to um, the number of infections and and death uh, started to decline uh, quite considerably, and the summer was quite good, and the restrictions were relaxed. So I expect that to happen again, and I think they're expecting that to happen again, and they might as well open up and see what happens uh, until the fall and see if things pick up again. Uh, personally, I think they're taking it too slow. I think they should go faster. Uh, I recall that uh, Texas. Uh, ended all restrictions was it back in February or March or something like that and people said oh it's going to skyrocket but instead it went down and it's still going down so you know it seems to be pretty much has run its course so with the vaccinations um, and the natural deterioration of the virus I, I think it's going to be good Peter, we'll give you the last word here before going to the break. Uh, what what do people need to be thinking about as these restrictions get loosened? Is it is it just inevitable that everything will come together by the end of the summer and we'll ba- be back to normality, or are people going to have to be cautious on the way? Oh, definitely. I think people have to be cautious, right? You know, um, this uh, virus is still highly communicable, uh, you know, and there's a, a lot of people who's, who have it. And it's, uh, you know, so the best advice would be that, right, is to, you know, really think about things, right, and um, gauge your activity in terms of uh, what you're doing and what you're planning and, uh, you know, proceed that way, right, because uh, this virus, it, it's shown that you can't fool around with it, right, and, it, and it, it's already rebounded a number of times, you know, so, uh, you know, you've had these waves, right, so... Uh, we shouldn't take anything for granted, um, but be safe and cautious. Well, and with that, we'll go into the break. Hubble Homestead's children's history book series now features a new book celebrating Clayton Tanay history. Set in the early 20th century, C.P. and the Fish Camp follows a young Clayton girl and her family through the seasons as they travel their territory gathering food and resources. Targeted to children ages 3 to 8, the book will also be enjoyed by art lovers and local history enthusiasts of all ages. CP and the Fish Camp is available at Hubble Homestead, Books and Company, Two Rivers Gallery, and the Railway and Forestry Museum. Last summer, as COVID-19 created economic hardship for creatives everywhere, a variety of charities were set up to offer assistance. With the backing of Songwriters of North America, the Songwriter Fund was created by songwriters for songwriters. With the repercussions of the pandemic continued to impact the music industry, the fund is still accepting donations as it gears up to provide another round of much-needed relief to songwriters. To learn more about the fund or to apply or donate, visit songwriterfund.com. Supporting and pushing the not-for-profit sector forward is a priority at Vantage Point. They aim to work with others in the sector to mutually accomplish goals and create discussion around important topics. These are the values and goals of Vantage Point's membership community. When you become a Vantage Point member, your board, staff, and volunteers can participate in their advocacy work and convening efforts for the sector. Find out more through the membership link under join at thevantagepoint.ca. Enjoy musical offerings from Cuba, Sweden, Canada, and New Zealand tonight and tomorrow, all from the comfort and safety of home. 
The BC Coral Federation CoreFest 2021 is available for two days only through bccoralfed.com. Featuring the most international lineup of presenters in the festival's history, it's a must for choral music fans. BCCF CoreFest 2021, 5.30 to 9 tonight and 8.30 to 3.30 tomorrow. Registration is available at bccoralfed.com. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Yes, good morning. This is the last portion of the panel that we have every Friday here at CFIS on After 9. We're uh, going to pivot right back into what we always pivot into the end uh, for our last panels here, our last panel, sorry, last section of the panel to be clear. Uh, with local issues. So spring has sprung in Prince George. We're seeing some construction around and some maintenance here, there, and everywhere. We're still out, you know, out not really knowing what's going to happen with the parkade and developments thereof and whether or not any of this construction is ever going to bring housing prices down. For a read on that, we're going to start with Eric Allen. Eric. Well, you know, I've been trying to figure this thing out, this housing construction and what's going on for a long time, and I'm still shaking my head. I don't know what's going on. Like this latest one now is up in uh, St. Lawrence Heights. It's going to be 200-unit uh, development there from somebody from Vancouver. It's just going through, I think it went through second reading or something. So there's 200 <clears throat> units going to go in there. But they don't tell you how long they're going to be there. And I think we need to look at, <clears throat> excuse me, how much this cost us, these developments, because they can go on for 15 years before you get a fully developed 200-unit uh, area filled up. So we got the Fraser River branch lands, and now we've got St. Lawrence. There's probably five or six major developments in Prince George that have a huge number of empty lots. So it's not a, sh- a question of not having any lots. There's lots of lots, but I'm at a kind of a, I don't know why they keep building these developments unless there's a good way to make money. I don't know. It might be a good way to make money. Well, I'll have to ask Herb about that for some numbers. But also the question being, uh, is is this going to help lessen the cost of housing in Prince George? It's kind of exploded. Uh, will having more supply help lessen costs, Herb? Uh, it won't lessen costs. I think the, the market's probably for people who are escaping um, uh, larger centers and the valuations that they're getting there are just um, astronomical compared to house prices here. So if you're cashing out in Vancouver and uh, you've got a two million bucks, let's say uh, six hundred, five hundred thousand uh, house in uh, in Prince George is a pretty good deal. Uh, that might be part of it. Uh, I think you know a lot of people see the potential in Prince George. Uh, you know, uh, for instance, uh, I mean, just even uh, regionally, uh, the Mackenzie Sawmill is still not producing. It's one of the largest uh, ten. Uh, 10 largest uh, um, uh, sawmills in the world, and um, uh, there's there's a lot of potential. Uh, uh, you know, at, at, and people have to be scratching their heads and say, you know, why why isn't that sawmill open yet? Um, given the prices and uh, and the adequate fiber supply, so yeah, I think there's there's a lot of optimism, and um, but I don't think it's going to bring lower prices. Art, we're uh, in the middle of uh, a big upswing in housing prices throughout the country, let alone uh, Vancouver, let alone Prince George. Um, you know, the cost of things is going up. The chance of getting to afford the cost of things is going down for some people, at least. What's what's going to happen here locally in Prince George? I have no idea. Um, 
Like I, I can't understand this surge in prices. Uh, it, it's inflation. I'm, I fear that it's not a bubble. I, I fight, think it might be a bubble, but I fear that it's not, and it will stay high and uh, basically price first-time home buyers right out of the market. Uh, it makes no sense to me. I can't really see the value in it. Uh, I don't understand all the building going on in Prince George because I can't see where are the people coming from. Uh, it just makes no sense to me. Um, it's, it's true that people down in the lower mainland will be cashing out and moving to the interior, but I think they're mostly moving to the southern interior rather than the north up here. So, you know, I, I, boy, I wish I knew. Peter, it, it is a question of, of first-time home buyers being priced out of the market. Let alone, let alone the fact that maybe, maybe little fixer-uppers aren't supposed to all be rental properties. I don't know. I was talking about this on another show I do earlier this week. I got called a socialist for maybe proposing that you don't need five houses. Uh, maybe five different people need one house. Uh, but in any case, uh, I thought that was a fairly even point, even for a right winger. But nonetheless, uh, what what is going to happen here, and what with all these developments, why isn't the number on the sign changing? Uh, well, yeah, like the, the the whole problem is is that there's no over, overall plan for these things, right? You know, we have a situation where whereby uh, there's a lot of seniors, right, who are you, you know scheduled to move from their homes to more assisted living, uh, that kind of thing. There's uh, young people, right, who want to get into the market but can't because of uh, all the problems there. Then you have homeless people, right? You know, so. You know, there's a there's a crisis in the in the housing industry, and we need to think about doing things differently. I, I think that we should start from the principle that housing should be a right for everyone, and uh, we should work out plans so that, and fill in those plans so that uh, that uh, home uh, everyone can have one, and and you can have that um, issue realized, right? So, uh, I think that's. What we need, where we need to go, but we live in right now in a neoliberal world where, you know, big corporations decide everything, and uh, you get all kinds of uh, uh, oversupply, and you get bubbles, and uh, the bubbles burst, and and so on. And we need a more stable uh, process that takes place where there's planning that goes uh, goes on uh, on the overall as well as the local. I think that's the way to go. Herb, uh, with with things going on here locally and with the developments that are happening, what what's what's got to be our next step here? Are we are we going to are we going to get out of this bubble, or are we just going to be stuck with uh, a permanent inflation and wages will catch up later? I, I think we uh, look pretty sure there's no reason for houses to be so highly priced. Uh, we've got lots lots of uh, areas. Uh, we've got uh, uh, an abundant workforce. Um, uh, there's, there's all sorts of possibilities on the horizon. We just have to uh, take our own destiny in hand and, uh, and start planning for it. Um, really, this is, uh, this is an age of opportunity for Prince George, I think. I think we could see some real growth here in the next couple of years. And, uh, you know, the CK uh, Denny, or the, sorry, the Carrier Sakani um, uh, uh, harvesting uh, license, I think, uh, uh, for was it 1.2 million cubic meters a year? Uh, that's a sign of good things to come. I think we're we're gradually uh, bringing uh, economic power back to uh, our region, and I think this is um, 
I think we're we're, we're starting on a on a good trend. Eric, I'll give you the last word here. What what do we need to know about the cost of things and what's happening locally? What do we need to be thinking about as as things continue to develop? Well, we got to look at the whole the whole picture. Like, <clears throat> you know, then like you say that sign, the number's not changing on the sign because people aren't coming to this town. It hasn't grown in fifteen years, and that's a you can look that up on the BC government's website on population growth. There's next to none. The university colleges haven't been growing. So where are these people coming from? And that's right, they're going down to the south. Vancouver Island is ten times busier than we are, and people are going over there and building houses all the time. So there's a lot of that going on around us. But I use that example coming back from Alberta where I told the wife, when we hit the T. John turnoff, I said, there's 21 cars behind me. When I go right, those 21 are going left, and that's exactly what happened. I was the only one on the road at the, at the turnoff there. So this idea that everybody's coming to Prince George is a fallacy. Now, they will come if we have good jobs, but we don't have jobs. At the same time we're expecting people to come, we're downsizing and getting rid of jobs. We got rid of uh, 70 sawmills here in the last 20 years, and we got rid of 20,000 jobs. So we got to put it together and, uh, and start to see the, uh, what's really going on as opposed to what we'd like to see going on. Exactly, opposed to what we'd like to see going on. Well, uh, if I'm allowed to wax philosophical for just a couple of seconds here, uh, this is actually going to be my last hosting gig for a while. Uh, I'm getting married at the end of the summer, and uh, I'm excited about all that, obviously, but uh, I am going to be slightly preoccupied uh, throughout the summer uh, planning things and getting things ready and uh, figuring out how to dodge the cost of lumber while building a dance floor. That's going to be interesting. Uh, but in any case, uh, just, yeah, uh, it's been great being in the hot seat for the last six months again after I was up in Churchill, and I'm thankful to all of you. Uh, you guys keep on trucking. We'll find you another host, and I'll see you guys when I see you guys on the other side. Okay. Thank you so much. That was After 9, and uh, we'll see you again next week. I won't, but the rest of the panel will uh, next Friday, After 9. After 9 is a daily presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Reg Fair, and Nathan Gita. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. This is Community Radio 93.1 CFISFM Prince George, proudly supported by local businesses like Books and Company, 1685 3rd Avenue.